The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! The future has come to pass. everybody, welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series, so you don't have to. I'm your live Steve Angelical, Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. We are here. We are so close. Start the clock, boys. The appointed time is growing ever so near by the second. It's time to head through Assassins Part 3. Excuse me, Assassins Assignment Murder. Target, Target Antichrist. Antichrist. <laughs> we don't have to say the name of that book until we finish the episode. But. Say, I'll, I'll have to say it again for the wrap-up. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm not quite out of this yet. All right, so where we left off with Chapter 15, I want to give them a little recap about some of the last things that happened there. Yeah, uh, Ray bought the most absurd gun known to man. <laughs> Um, Ray told another lie. Yeah. And we left off with Ray lying to Dwayne Tuttle. Uh, yeah, the guns for self-defense. I'm in no way going to use this for murder. And so we begin with chapter 16. And we find Buck Williams is back in Israel, pleading with Chaim Rosenzweig to please come to Christ. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure at this point what Hayam's reservations are, but the point is that Hayam is still basically going like, ah, you know, I get it. I understand what you're saying. I've heard it a thousand times. I'm just not there yet. And Buck says a couple of interesting things in this section. For one, no more agnostics. Like it's impossible to be an agnostic anymore. Which I, I thought that was an, like a, an interesting thing. So I think like a few episodes back, you touched on like, well, if you were living during the events that this book is depicting, how would you begin to like swing? And at this point, like it's kind of hard in the book, this book's context to be an agnostic at this point. Yeah. I mean, and it's right. There yeah. is no reason for you to be an agnostic. And that kind of bugs me later on with some of the stuff that they depict. And I think it has some kind of problematic implications for the rest of humanity, or at least how the book views humanity. There's another line in here that says neutrality is death. Yeah, neutrality is death. Neutrality is a no vote. You pretend to leave the issue to others, but in the end, you lose. Yeah, and that's kind of what they're setting up Hayam to be is lukewarm. And that actually has something to do with the book of Revelation. Yes, uh, the Laodiceans, correct? Dude, you pulled that one right out. I was going to have you look it up. (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing this for far too long, Shane. (laughs) I didn't even remember. I was like, oh, there's a lot of churches in there. I think one's called Sardis, and that's all I remember. Okay, so the Laodiceans were the lukewarm church, is that right? Yes. 
And I just remember the verse, you are neither hot nor cold, and I will spit you out of my mouth. Yes. Did you ever get a Sunday school lesson about that? Yeah, that was actually, I remember of several like that. That's actually been, I guess, like, for Scientology terms, an ingram of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get that out, buddy. Here, yeah. Hold on to these cans. But yeah, dude, I had that same kind of lesson as well. Um, and I don't know if they ever explained it to you this way, but when we got that lesson from Revelation about being lukewarm, what they're talking about is being lukewarm in the faith. Yeah. And it's better for you to be cold because at least you may not know or someone can bring you to Christ. It's way better for you to be hot and on fire with your faith because then you're, you know, really doing the work. Mm -hmm. If you have your faith, but you're lukewarm or you just don't care then you're doing nothing for God mm -hmm. and, and that will be rejected. Right. And how it's been depicted so far, all the lukewarm people got left behind in the context of this story. Yeah. Bruce could, was a lukewarm guy. Yeah, And it, Rayford to a do well, Rayford, like just straight up. I don't like, it was like, he didn't believe. No, but I'd go there with you though. Okay. He was, he was walking the walk, but not really believing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably true with Bruce too. And Loretta and a few of the other ones arguable, but that's really the point that's being made here. And I'm just going to go ahead and say the back third of this book got a little bit preachy oh, yeah. for me. And I don't remember it being that way. And maybe it's because I was hearing those lessons so often when I was younger that it kind of went over my head. We'll get to a point where I kind of had enough in my notes. You know what I mean? Yeah. From Buck pleading with Hyam, we go over to Ray and the Tuttles. They land in France and begin their operation. Now, their operation is to extract Hattie from the house that she's being held at with Samuel Hansen. Mm -hmm. Or so they think. As we will find out, the GC has already taken care of Sam Hansen. He's in a body bag. They've taken Hattie and they've moved her to another... Can we just call it a re-education facility? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they sent her to the Ministry of Truth, essentially. Yeah, it's literally like a re-education facility. But they don't know that yet. Dwayne kind of starts getting into the planning of it. Like, he's really digging all of the espionage stuff. He's like, look, we can go out and we can get separate rental cars. And then we can go pick her up in one car and then pick him up in another car. And then we can ditch him or I can shove him out of the car. You know, I got all these ideas, Ray. I hate him. I'm be honest, the Tuttles so far have been kind of forgettable for me. I would rather forget them. Yeah. I envy that you can forget them. I'm kind of to the point now, and I don't know about you, that I almost don't even want to call out the dumb names anymore. Yeah. There's a lot of dumb names in here. Specifically because everyone starts using aliases. That are even dumber than the in-universe name. But I feel like we have to mention these two because Sam and Hattie are going under James Dykes and May Willie. And even even like Rayford's just like sometimes you, you have to wonder like what they're thinking. The book calls out their bad names, dude. It's great. <sighs> While this is going on, David is still frantically trying to get in touch with Ray. He's, like, texting him, like, every 60 seconds with, like, an automatic thing on his phone. That just says abort. <laughs> he can't get in touch with him. He can't get in touch with him. Ray and Dwayne go off to pick up Hattie, and Trudy finally picks up Ray's phone, turns it on because she's being nosy, and is like, oh, no. So she realizes she's going to have to take off after Ray and get him to abort the mission. Yes. Because as we've said several times, he is walking into a trap. So Ray reaches the apartment building. He goes in alone. Dwayne waits by the car. And this is the point where we have our first action scene of the section. And it just kicks off right here in this chapter. Yeah, because uh, Rayford goes to this door. He's just like, hey, who is it? He gives his alias Tom Agee. And he's like, I, I, don't, I don't know anybody by that name. And he's like, oh, I'm a friend of a woman who lives here. And he's like, no one else here. 
and then Rayford just hears the stink action of a gun being loaded. Rayford just flab goes, are you Sam Hampson? And uh, the man goes, nope, my name's Jimmy Dykes. Then you are Samuel Hansen. Where's Hattie Durham? And then as soon as he asks Sam where Hattie is, Ray is told she's not here, but I can take you to her. Kids, never go to a second location. Yep. That's uh, <laughs> kidnapping room 101. Uh, I, I don't know the statistic, but if you if you get taken to a second location, your chances of being found exponentially go down. So get out of there. Yeah, just just turn around and walk away. Say, that's no good. <laughs> so while Ray is having his confrontation with Sam Hansen, Trudy is rushing to get there. She buys a map. She speeds to get there. She rushes into the building, past her husband, rushes up the stairs, and then just screams, abort! Tries to pull Rayford out of the room, but realizes, oh, hell, that guy has a gun. <laughs> uh. Ray football tackles gun guy through a window, but, like, doesn't finish the job. Like, he tackles half his body out the window and just leaves him there and takes off. So poor Dwayne and Trudy get to the car first and have to speed off with Ray in the back, dodging bullets the whole way. (laughs) Trudy dials Mac, who has David's phone, and just whimpers, mission accomplished, and then bursts into tears. (laughs) The the stat screen pulls up. You see all the kills for the round. (laughs) Right. Um, And that is basically chapter 16. They go to get Hattie. Hattie's not there. They get shot at and then have to regroup and figure out what they're going to do next. So at the beginning of chapter 17, the Tuttles opt to leave France. Ray hasn't decided if he's going to go home yet because he still has one more stop to make. Mm -hmm. Buck has decided to leave Israel. He is coming back home. The Tribulation Force is pretty much going to regroup in Chicago for a little while. But he stops by Lucas Miklos on his way home. Find out that Lucas has sold his business. He has got all of his ducks in a row for the commodity co-op to start. And we get a little bit of talk about the Mark of the Beast. It's still a little while off, but they are putting all of the pieces together to kind of have a plot reason why the Tribulation Force does not suffer as badly Mm -hmm. once the Mark of the Beast happens. Which, I'll be honest, that's pretty much all the co-op thing is. It never really grows legs as a, an entire subplot, which I feel is kind of unfair to Chloe. Really? Yeah. I thought like that would be because like they would have to be a major hub of any Christian economics they're going. So I thought that'd be like main plot later in the books. I'm going to tell you without spoiling, there is something that happens middle of the next book. And then it kind of gets spooled out into the next couple of books after that before it really starts to take off. There is a left turn that the plot kind of takes for prophecy reasons where a lot of the co-op stuff kind of starts to have to take a backseat. Okay. It's weird. Okay. We'll we'll get to it when we get to it. We'll have to get to it. (laughs) So we get to the airport, the Tuttles and Ray. They have two rental cars and they're going to return them separately. The Tuttles have no problem getting through. Ray, not so much. So he tries to return his rental car and he kind of gets held up by the guy at the rental counter. He's like, uh, your card uh, didn't go through. And so he goes to the back. Ray can kind of hear him speaking in like low tones in French. And then he kind of looks out at Ray. Then he kind of goes back to the phone, looks out at him again, and then back to the phone. And Ray's starting to get nervous. Like he knows what's going down. Immediately confirmed when a bunch of GC cars pull up. Yep, he just goes deuces, sees a fence that's about four and a half feet tall and tries to jump over it, but his foot gets caught at the top of the fence. 
and he just flubs it. But he gets over the fence. He's just kind of scraped up about it. Yeah, it's not graceful, but he makes it, and he starts sprinting across the runway. And Dwayne's jet is kicking up dust. It's making it really hard to see, and there's one guard who is just hauling after him. Almost catches him, and Ray has to, like, jump to get into the door and, like, grab Trudy's hand. And the guy just tries to jump and grab him and, like, grabs Rayford's heel, and he kicks him off. Barely managed to get into the sky, close the door. We've seen this scene before. Mm -hmm. And then Dwayne does a Dwayne thing. Yep, he lets out a couple woo boys. Which we've seen that before, too. Yeah. This guy's just worse Ken. We want Ken back. Yeah, give me Ken back. We cut away from this harrowing escape. Is that what it is? Yeah, I I guess so. I think we're kind of spoiled by what happens at the end of this book, which is way better. Yeah, because like I was saying before we got on mic, this first part kind of seems like when compared to the second half of part three, this is kind of just like, all right, come on, let's get to the fucking assassins. Yeah, exactly. So we're back to a David scene, and I have a particular fondness for some of the David scenes, especially when he's interacting with the bad guys. Yeah, because he's a he's a sly dude. So he's eavesdropping on a conversation involving a new character that I don't think we've met yet. The GC intelligence chief, a guy named Jim Hickman. This is a point that we see a lot where Tim will just drop a bunch of counter arguments to his theology into the story that are completely reasonable. And then just goes, nah. Yeah. Can you read that part? These cultists, Hickman began, are what I like to call literalists. They believe ancient writings, particularly the Jewish Torah and the Christian New Testament, and they make no distinction between historical records, many of which have proven accurate, and figurative, symbolic languages of the so-called prophetic passages. For instance, anyone, myself included, with a cursory background in the history of ancient civilizations knows that much of the so-called prophetic books of the Bible are not prophetic at all. Oh, after the fact of some strange natural phenomenon, one could make some of the imaginative and descriptive language fit the event. For instance, the current rash of death by fire, smoke, and sulfur, which is clearly poison vapor warfare, probably by this very group, becomes the fulfillment of what they believe is a prophecy that includes monstrous horses with lion's heads ridden by 200 million men. Yeah, and he goes on to explain and then debunk several of the judgments and other supernatural phenomena that have happened. And like I said, it's just Tim putting out counter arguments and then going, nah, which kind of gets under my skin. It's sort of talking down to people who are a lot more reasonable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I just didn't really appreciate that. Yeah, it's like he's just feeding, like you said, their part of the uh, argument and just throwing a this bad over it if you hear this disregard it and maybe it is a little bit dare i say 1984-esque no i won't i won't say that (laughs) it's not not (laughs) yeah it's putting things in the mouth of the bad guys that you don't want your audience to believe and then putting things in the mouth of the good guys that you want them to believe yeah it's propaganda during the conversation though Hickman's job was to research all of those different prophetic writings, and he actually gives Leon the exact date of the due time. They talk about the witnesses, and it starts to seem like Leon actually believes they are supernatural, which if anybody's going to, maybe make it the guy who was raised from the dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
I, I get that. Yeah, because I think even at one point, he's just like, but doesn't that imply these men are who they say they are? It makes do no difference, do you not see? <laughs> I want responsibility, credits, and points for standing up to these imposters. Of course, Excellency, you know best. Yeah, and that's from a conversation that happens immediately after because he and Nikolai start talking, and, and you're right, that he is very candid with Nikolai, and Nikolai's like, yeah, I don't care if they're real or not. I definitely want credit for killing them. So Nikolai has determined how and when now he has his appointed time. He knows when his moment is going to strike. He's going to kill him. And he does it because he wants the credit. He wants the belief. He wants the faith. He wants to be a hero. He wants to be a deity. So by showing power over the people who are causing the plagues and death, at least thanks to GC propaganda, most of them are believing that the witnesses are doing this. Nikolai wants credit for cutting off the head of the snake. Yes. Back to Ray and the Tuttles. They touch down in Al Basra to meet with Albi so that Ray can get his weapon. Ray starts considering what they're going to do next for Hattie. Hattie is being kept in Brussels. They know that now, thanks to David. They need someone to extract her, and he decides that he's going to trust Leah to do it. And he starts praying for Hattie's soul because he's actually worried about her. She may never see the outside of a jail cell ever again. And he knows that if she does, she's just like him. She's going to go straight for Nikolai, and then the assassin will not survive. Yeah, and his uh, specific uh, prayer is, Lord, search my motives. I want what you want. I want Hattie saved before she does something to get herself killed. Search my motives. I haven't heard that one in a prayer before. That's one that's kind of a Christian deep cut. When I've historically heard people pray that, there can be a level of sincerity there. It's basically trying to prove to yourself that what you are asking God for is pure. Okay. In a way, like it's not self-motivated. In this case, we know it definitely is. So there's kind of some insincerity there to it, but he's trying. Yeah. So they get there, they show up, they meet Albie. Albie decides he's going to take Ray off into the desert to test the weapon. And the Tuttles opt to stay behind. They're pretty tuckered out by everything that they've been through, Trudy especially. Like, she's fallen asleep at the table at the cafe that they're at. They head off to test the weapon. But before they leave, another terrible Dwayne line. Yep, I have it highlighted. Don't worry about me, partner. You won't catch me napping. I haven't had this much fun since the pigs ate my sister. It's just something folksy. Okay. I you get know, it. it's just, there's kind of like this stereotype that like Southern people talk like that. Generally, they don't. There are some that do. Yes, but mostly that's in movies. Yeah. <laughs> so back to Leon and David. So Leon approaches David, and this is another great Leon scene. He tells David that there's been an internal audit of his team. So David kind of starts sweating a little bit. He's like, uh-oh, well, I'm burned. And Leon's like, yeah, we've decided to pull the plug on your department. Sorry, man. It's just not worth the money we're putting into it. Your resources can be better spent elsewhere. I need you, David. Um, so it turns out they're shifting David's team to help Leon with each meeting he's going to have with the Ten Kings because he's going to be going around the world courting each of the Ten Kings. And Leon is trying to be Nikolai. Mm -hmm. He goes on and on and on about how well-spoken Nikolai is and how much he knows all these facts about the different regions. And he's like, and I want to be that guy. So David... Your people are going to Wikipedia stuff about each of these regions for me so that I can be like Nikolai when I meet each one of these people, which is very funny. And I love how Jerry writes Leon as a boss. I just wrote how relatable it is. Yeah, I definitely uh, I feel that. When he says something to the effect of like, 
the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. And I'm just like, man, like he's saying every how to win friends and influence people line possibly. It's amazing that he's not reusing David's name over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, those people, man. Yeah, yeah. Because they read that stupid book and they're like, the most wonderful sound to a human being is the sound of their own name. They tried to get us to read that for like the first fast food job I worked. That was that was a trip. That book is straight garbage. Uh, really? Like, it's borderline, like, L. Ron Hubbard bullshit. Really? Yeah. That does track with, like, the majority of self-help books are just a grift. Yep. This was the big thing that stuck out to me about this end of the chapter. Leon talks about how the world fell in love with Nikolai because he was articulate and knowledgeable. He showed expertise and experience, well-spoken, calm, even-keeled, charismatic, personable, and that made the entire world fall in love with him as a politician. All I could do was laugh. <laughs> if only he had written that today. And you know what? I'm going to make a point. We have now lived through over half a decade of not just America, but a large amount of the world being overwhelmingly swayed by boorish, boisterous, loud, confrontational, not well-spoken, chest-beating, nationalistic assholes. Right. All over the world. Like, there was a wave of it last half decade. And it, it's kind of something you have to unpack, because when Jerry is putting Nikolai as the effete, erudite intellectual who speaks with authority and education and saying that that was going to enrapture the world, no pun intended, and he's the bad guy, the audience that he's speaking to and the ideas that he is reinforcing about experts and people who are educated and what it means to be knowledgeable and have a more cosmopolitan worldview as being negative is a large part why we have a lot of evangelicals in this country falling in love with boorish strongmen. Right, because when you start like devaluing like you know experts and people that actually do have a lot of the education, what comes in to fill the void are people that are ignorant, that are masquerading as experts. Yes, masquerading as experts or just feeding you your own hatred of experts back at you because they know it's what you want to hear. Yeah. It's a real bad situation, boys. <laughs> and I think that books like this and this kind of idea and narrative reinforce that. It's weird, like, of how these books are kind of coming back into popularity the last few years because last night, I went on a massive deep dive. Oh, no. We, well, I'll get into some of this on the off the record, but I wanted to go ahead and just talk about it a little bit. I was just going across like a, like a bunch of forums and stuff to seeing like what people talk about when they talk about these books. The, any two interpretations of the rapture, it'll just devolve into a, an argument about that for like a couple pages. It's they, Superman versus Goku for Bible nerds. Yeah. And they, they don't even like have these threads don't even bring up left behind. They're just ar arguing rapture theology. I was like, let's see what fanfiction.net has. Oh my God. Fanfiction.net uh, over the last few years has had an influx of left behind fanfictions. Not of the mainline series, mind you. The kids series in particular, the last few years has had a lot more uh, fan fiction written and just judging by the demographics so that means a lot of younger uh, kids during uh, last year were given these books uh, they fell in love with them so much that they kind of jump-started a small 
online community again, which I, I know, like, as soon as I sent you that, you're like, oh, this is very bad. Like, it was kind of like a stare into the abyss moment of, oh, dear God, some of our worst fears that we talked about on mic are actually coming true, if not worse than our actual fears. Yeah, okay. Part of when we did this podcast was, wouldn't it be funny to remember this thing that was very silly and everyone was obsessed with at our churches when we were growing up? We didn't think it was going to come back. Yeah, and it, it's coming back with a vengeance. Oh, oh, boy. Get me off this rock show. <laughs> you know what? Maybe we will have to read some of the fan fiction one day. I survived the rapture apocrypha. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know what? I'm putting that in the vault. That may happen. Get some left-behind fan fiction readings in here. Okay, so chapter 18. We get to see how this gun performs. Oh, boy. So, Ray and Albie head into the middle of nowhere to practice with the gun, like we said. We find out the gun is a solid block of metal, and it functions like a puzzle box. Yeah, you gotta, like, put your fingers on, like, a certain part of it, and that will trigger a mechanism that if you're, if only if you have your fingers on these parts it'll open and they have a little conversation that despite spending the last section of our last episode kind of dunking on their firearms knowledge they do say something that people should take to heart yeah there's no such thing as an unloaded gun the same thing with the computer guy thing of how they asked a guy how a computer works once uh, and that's how they got all their information it sounded like they talked to a gun guy once and they got like the big points like hey practice tr a trigger discipline they always treat as loaded so at least they're uh they're they're sharing good gun safety yeah that's true and they do say another one do not shoot unless you absolutely intend to destroy what you're shooting at okay that's um, good advice too that's another one that's another like gun safety 101 and so i'm glad that's in there mm -hmm. you know here's where it gets Big dumb. <laughs> now, Jason kind of mentioned this last week because we didn't read this portion, but he talked about it. And when you hear him last episode, if you hadn't read this yet, you'd be like, what is he talking about? It sounds kind of unbelievable. Nope, it's in there. Apparently, this weapon fires bullets at such a velocity that the projectile flattens out while spinning into a disc that slices through the target which also acts kind of like a lawnmower-esque blade and like has like a snowball effect where like things around it will pick up yeah i think they use the phrase gathering gore yeah ugh. which is a super cool band name by the way <laughs> gathering gore yeah gathering gore is an awesome band name yeah i've listened to them so ray takes a stance he gets ready to fire Albie's like, yeah, you're going to want to, you want to cover your ears there, buddy. And so he like sticks some paper in his ears and he shoots the gun and the recoil is so hard. It knocks him backward onto the ground. Mm -hmm. And so he's aiming for a rock and there's a big tree next to it completely misses the rock. And then the tree does like the anime, like gets cut in half thing where it slowly slides off of the bottom half. <laughs> so he missed the rock, but he blasted the tree in half. The explosion sounded like a bomb and then nothing as he was temporarily deafened and didn't even hear the echo. And Rayford's like glad he didn't fire off another round when he shot it because it probably would have like lobbed his arm off. And then we get to hear what the gun is called and you hear why I made the anime swordsman joke. What's the gun called, Gavin? Well, it's called a saber because the car battery thing like you have to pull it out of like a sheath so the gun part comes out of like this holder part so they make the analogy of it being a sword 
So the revelations bit where it says the Antichrist will be killed with a sword still comes true because it's a saber. We're, we're full blown in uh, that Leonardo DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet movie where all, they all have guns and they're like, draw your swords. Which, okay, if this gun is like a sword, aren't all guns because of holsters? This is so dumb. So dumb. Well, you, you see, Shane, we had to have this very convoluted thing where it g- gets pulled out of a, a, a thing specifically made for it. You see, it, just, it makes all make sense in the left behind uh, universe. I don't like it. After this scene in the desert, which admittedly, the gun is cool. It's not real, but it's cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a cyberpunk gun. Yeah. Iron Man's cool, too, and he's not real. Albie, Ray, they load up in the truck. They head back to meet the Tuttles. And as they pull in, there's a crowd gathered around the cafe, and they can't pull all the way through. And the crowd starts to move around a little bit, enough for Ray to see that the Tuttles are lying at the table where they were left at the cafe in pools of their own blood. Oh no, the Tuttles. I had so long to get used to them and fall in love with these characters. How could they die? (laughs) And as much as I want to be like, Thank God. It is really graphic, the way that they describe it. So it is kind of jarring. You're just yeah. like, well, and, and it comes out of nowhere. Like, these characters were, like, bubbly and happy to be there, and they were nice, and they didn't really do anything to anybody besides be annoying, and then they just get just dropped. Yeah. They're throwing characters at me so fast and then killing them that at a certain point, I'm just like, well, there goes another one. Oh, there goes another one. I don't remember that happening that much in the later few books it might but i think this is the one instance where i found it to be really egregious yeah so ray is in full anger mode like ready to jump out of the car and like fight somebody and albie has to hold him back he's like no you have a job to do and it's important that we talk about this with albie remember albie's not a believer albie is a devout muslim who is an enemy of the global community and of enigma babylon Mm-hmm. So his faith is telling him to oppose Enigma Babylon and to oppose Carpathia, not his faith in Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to circle back to him over the next few books when it's relevant. But I did find that a little bit strange because they keep mentioning, no, he's not a believer. He's not. Doesn't matter. I, I guess that's to show that even if you're not a believer, if you're still like in a very close knit religious faith you're you're probably not going to like Carpathia either and you're going to want this to like go through as well yeah and they're sort of putting the blanket that they're putting on the orthodox jews onto albi as well they may not believe in christ but at least they are good abrahamic believers they're still kind of within their cousins mm-hmm. you know so they still believe in god and believe in satan and you know they kind of got it right under like how much like more like do they go into like m- like muslim faith in the later books almost interact? zero really okay yeah it is i don't want to call it erasure but it kind of is like yeah, it's yeah. almost nothing because it's like yeah they focus on christians and jews very heavily but then it's like they just shove like one or two muslim characters in there that get a little bit of screen time say so see we've included them too it's an interesting dynamic in between, you know, your three major Abrahamic religions, because you have Christians because of the Old Testament, I think, feel like they can relate to Jewish people a lot more. (laughs) Okay. Whether that's true or not, I I think they think that, but I find that most Christian people, especially now, have almost no concept or understanding of Islam, at least in 
the circles I grew up in and the ones that I will still frequent. Obviously, there are outliers and exceptions, but that tends to be the the arm's length relationship. That is by no means meant to be a definitive statement. Albie, still being a real good guy, is going to help Ray escape. He's basically going to shut all the lights off in the runway, give Ray an out so he can run to the plane, start her up, and escape. Albie fulfills his end of the deal. Ray takes off onto the runway in the pitch dark, and then the lights come on at the last second. Knows GC guards are running after him. One guy gets up ahead and is like, Rayford Steele, halt! And then the best moment, Ray's just like, no. <laughs> yeah, and then he reaches in his pocket for the saber. The guy yells, you're under arrest, and he... He threatens to shoot the guy. He actually does shoot him, or does he just shoot He him? shoots at his feet. Yeah, he shoots at his feet, and Rayford, as he's running away, goes, God, don't let him die, which Albie just told you, don't aim the gun at people you don't want to be destroyed. Exactly. So you can't just you can't just not take gun advice and then pray about it. Ray, you were in the military, my guy. Like, you know this. And he's using an incredibly powerful handgun that we know can kill people without the bullet hitting them. Wait, Ray was in the military? Did that just like go over my head? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was military. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't even think he saw combat. Uh, that doesn't mention like his soldier background They much. said he flew fighters. Oh, okay. But that doesn't mean that he saw combat. He was probably like a Cold War. Got it. Guy. Okay. With his age, he would have been like, you know, late 70s, early 80s, probably. Gotcha. We also know that the GC has scrambled fighters to catch him, but somehow he eludes them. Like, he banks off in the opposite direction that they would probably look for him and is able to evade them. And we close out the chapter with Zion watching at the window as another wave of horsemen begin to storm across the earth on what they call their final approach. And then Ray looking down and seeing it from the air as they are like the dead army from Return of the King, just rolling across the ocean and making landfall and just massacring people. Chapter 19 cuts three months later. We get a a shorter time skip than the first one that we got all the way back in book two. Yeah, we got to fast forward a little bit. Yeah, and you know what? Unlike the, the first time skip where I was a bit mad at this, I'm like, okay, yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's push things on a little bit. I want to get to the end. I want to see what happens. Yes. So we find out the death toll has officially reached 50% since the rapture. We are finally at end game time. Yep. And, uh, little Ken is actually now he's walking and talking around a bit, providing a little bit of solace and a little bit of respite for everybody. Cause he's being a cute baby and they need some wholesome moments in their life. Yeah, they need something. I just kind of go off of the opinion going forward that everyone in the Tribulation Force has PTSD. Everyone in the Tribulation Force is depressed. Yeah, and they're just like holding this baby, sucking all of the molecules of dopamine out of it that they can just to stay stay sane. Yeah, I know. Because the members of the safe house are almost at each other's throats. Yeah. Like it's cutting back and forth between them and the things they are saying versus the things they aren't saying to each other. Like... The temperature is rising in this house, which is good because a lot of them are about to leave and go do stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's going to relieve that tension a little bit. So we find out the gala is one month away, the midway gala, the end of the tribulation. The 1,261 days, the halfway point, right? Yes. Okay. Weirdly enough, Zion has been invited as a diplomatic guest to the gala in what is not at all a trap. It's not a trap. (laughs) But Zion's too smart for that. He's not going. He's like, nah, 
He sees the giant like stick holding up a box with like a piece of candy in it. And he's just like, I shouldn't go near that <laughs> trap that says free bird seed and then has a rocket pointed at it. <laughs> so he's not only going because it's obviously a trap. He's not going because Jerusalem is about to get dangerous. Yeah. Specifically, there is prophesied an earthquake that is going to destroy one tenth of Jerusalem at the halfway point. So he gives another one of his great Zion boomer posting addresses. But there's some nuggets in here. Okay. He defends the Orthodox Jews. We were just talking about that with the Abrahamic religions and kind of their relationship with one another. He defends the Orthodox Jews because Nikolai is about to outlaw the sacrifices in the temple. Mm -hmm. He gave it to him. He rebuilt the temple. And now he's had enough because they won't join Enigma Babylon. They're still continuing their old ways. And he's like, you know what? Nah, we're done now. And a lot of them are protesting. A lot of them are speaking out against it. And Zion's like, they are right to do that. He told them a lie. He gave them something and then took it away because he could. Mm -hmm. So uses it as a way to condemn Nikolai. And then he goes on, man, I'm kind of getting tired yeah, of reiterating yeah. how sinful the world has gotten. It's, it's like, okay, so you know those old, like, Sunny D commercials where they would, like, list the other drinks in the fridge in the exact same order? That's the vibe I'm getting with this. It's like, you got your brothels, your fortune um, uh, telling places, your pawn shops. I don't know what it is. Maybe it is the insistence on including like fortune telling parlors and pagan temples in this list because like okay if you're in a seedy part of town you're gonna see porn shops you know you might have a red light district depending on what country you're in you're gonna have gambling places you're gonna have those things that either are considered vice or low class or maybe something that organized crime might be involved in you know that kind of thing that's a stereotype but that's what you have Adding in the psychics and the pagan temples is such a ham-fisted, like, shoehorning in of Revelation stuff mm -hmm. because it assumes that if a completely secular society were to exist, the first thing people would do would be to start worshiping idols, mm -hmm. which is dumb. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, that would happen, like, either. It goes on to, like, explain, like, what it means by idols later in another retelling, I guess. I mean, no, he's serious. He's talking about literal, like, pagan idols. Because Revelation says the men would not stop worshiping their idols of wood and stone. Okay. And so it is very specifically saying, no, 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 they're going to revert to pagan idol worship. All the rest of the religions still exist exist fyi like they've folded into enigma babylon but the practices still exist and rather than adapting to something that is more secular and more palatable like i'm gonna go to a meditation class which evangelicals love that like he could have just said that do some yoga you know stuff that does exist and he, he talks about that stuff but specifically the idol worship even now, if you go to a party and you tell someone like, oh, no, no, I have idols in my closet that I pray to, they're going to look at you at least a little funny. Yeah, like, because it's that's not a it's not a widespread thing. It, that's just like a boogeyman that they kind of pull out. That's like, oh, you better watch it because these guys will have like ball shrines in their closet that they're praying to on the reg. Yeah, dude. I mean, and you occasionally like you got the Wiccan kids from school that would like have their altars and stuff and like even then they were considered weird yeah to say nothing of witch talk you know if you certain places Let's on TikTok, the moon! right certain places on tiktok you might think that that's all there is it is a little more accepted now 
But again, specifically idols is such a we have to shove this in from Revelation thing that it feels very clunky. Yeah. And it kind of takes me out of it, you know? Oh, by the way, the only new type of films being made are porn. Marvel's canceled. Uh, actually, we still make Marvel. It's just all Rule 34 content now, mainline. Yeah, yep. Iron Man is all it's. <laughs> Captain America's shield, it's just a booby. Censored joke about Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> how Endgame should have ended is oh. how Endgame ends. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is also ridiculous. Okay, I understand the half of the population being massacred, maybe they're not making a ton of new movies and porn is cheap to produce comparatively. But at the same time, like we, we don't have like, you know, like an action flick to take people's mind off of it. We don't have like a, a movie of, you know, like there, there's not even like a documentary about Carpathia's life coming out. That's just like, I don't you know? believe it. I also, he doesn't talk about video games. Really? Yeah. And maybe this was not quite late enough i mean doom was out you know and like super mario brothers was out and like by this point maybe even pokemon yeah this out. is like hold on this is we're like past 97 at this point we're in hold on what year are we at because i know pokemon dropped in 97 yeah this is 98 99 oh yeah 99 yeah yeah pokemon was out yeah and christians hated that so, like, why are you not talking about the video games? Well, like, Pokemon specifically, he's already mentioning fortune-telling parlors because, as we all know, Pokemon is tied to the world of the demonic. Right. Um, have we ever talked about the specific thing that got Christians to say big no to Pokemon? What was it? So, the evolution thing was one of them. Obviously, they, they use the word evolve, even though it's more of a metamorphosis process. A lot of evangelicals saw evolve and immediately went, eh. But the other thing for the parents that delved a little deeper... Lavender Town. Ah, okay. Had to be Lavender Town. One, because there is a shrine, it's like a Shinto shrine, that is dedicated to the spirits of dead Pokemon. Two, that those spirits are actually in there. Three, that the only type of trainer that you fight in there are channelers. Ah, okay. So you have channelers that are possessed by spirits, and they are present in the game. But from there, we turn a little bit about the marks. And this is an inconsistency that I have brought up several times that without spoilers, I'm going to say does get addressed in the books. He talks about the mark of the lamb is indelible, meaning that once you got it, it ain't going anywhere. It's very once saved, always saved for you uh, Baptists out there. We didn't believe in that. Um, <laughs> we didn't allow backsliding. But the mark of the lamb is indelible, but the mark of the beast is unforgivable. So if you take the mark of the beast, Soul's done. Go to hell, go straight to hell, you're done. But if you have the mark of the lamb, you are not in danger of that. Now, okay. it's kind of hazy with the language, and it gets very concrete in the next couple of books exactly what that's going to look like. Okay. But I do find it a little bit of a contradiction, even in the way that the book explains it. And I'm really skirting around spoilers here. If the mark of the lamb is something that you can't lose, but you decided to, I don't know, take the mark of the beast as a tactical maneuver to stay alive, to keep the most people alive as possible, does it count? Like, do you lose it? Never gets addressed. Okay. Huh. Not really. And then he ends his address with Romans 8, 38, and 39. I'm a bad ecumenical fanboy today. I do not have the Bible. <gasps> you forgot your Bible. John, now you know. Going to Sunday school without your Bible is not going to war without your gun. 
Yeah, it's a quote. That's an actual quote of one of my dad's Sunday school teachers. Oh, <laughs> there's something about that specific accent you did that like made hair stand up because that's like that is just the voice of like your overly zealous Baptist guy at church. It could be that, or it could just be Andy Griffith. Okay, yeah, that could be true. <laughs> All right. So we get a little bit of housekeeping. So it's T that tells Bo that his brother is dead. Because remember, Sam, Bo's brother, was killed by the GC. Bo blames himself because he's the one who sent Sam out on the mission with Hattie trying to get money. And he thinks he got Sam killed. And we think for a minute that everything's going to be okay because he let T pray with him. And T's whole thing was that he was going to try to witness to Bo. He thinks he's making progress. And even Ray's like, oh, good, you're making progress. And he goes, Bo killed himself last night. And Rayford, like, takes this hard. Like, he's just like, I, I might as well killed him. Yeah, Ray, I mean, kind of, but way to make it all about yourself, though. Well, don't worry. He projects all that anger that he's feeling towards himself, towards Nikolai Carpathia, so it just helps fuel him a little bit more. Look, you're starting to sound like my therapist. I need you to cool it just a little, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and then we end the Ray section with him absolutely shoehorning the saber, sword, gun, thing into the revelation narrative. So Ray is straight up inserting himself into biblical prophecy now, which is painted as a bad thing in the book. We said this in some previous episodes that all the stuff Ray's doing isn't painted as positive, Mm -hmm. which is good. I think that's to the book's credit. It's not painted as negative enough because when I explain guy to you in real life who starts inserting himself into biblical prophecy, what do you think of? Well, I start thinking of probably like Tim Lay and Jerry B. Jenkins. Oh, really? Because I think of like Jim Jones. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> your typical cult leader stuff where they, they make themselves the centerpiece of this doctrine and this cult that can't function without them. So they get like this elevated feeling of like... Um, ego. Yeah, yeah, they get this like ego trip. Like, oh yes, I am fulfilling the will of God here. Yeah. So and I can do no wrong. Yeah. And there's like other serial killers and stuff too that did it. So when you think about a guy inserting himself into biblical prophecy, it's a very different type of podcast that we yeah. would be on. <laughs> Next to the saber thing, I just wrote, come on, right? <laughs> What was the gun called? The Saber. Saber. Come on, dude. Get out of here. Oh, it's so bad, man. Because they keep saying, like, oh, it'll be a very specific head wound. The beast will be killed with the sword or whose head was wounded by the sword. That comes back around later. Mm-hmm. Mac gives us a little recap of his trip with Leon to meet the Ten Kings. Leon's glad-handing. He's smiling. He's complimenting them all. And he's having these private meetings on the plane with each one of them. And so Mac is doing the old Ray trick of listening in on what they're saying. At one point, he has a very great meeting with the African potentate, the new one, the one that just replaced Rehoboth. Nikolai is personally guaranteeing to the world an end to these killer plagues by killing the witnesses. So he's going on TV and being like, I'm going to kill these guys. You guys cool with that? I'm going to kill them. And the whole world's like, yeah. And then there's a line in here that says, people are addicted to their own sin. I thought that was a bit strange. I mean, I guess they're just talking about hedonism. But uh, yeah, definitely. I think they refer to a part of Jerusalem as the hedonist district. Yeah, that on. was that was weird. Yeah, I wrote that in the notes too. But yeah, they say people are addicted to their own sin. 
Dude, half the world is dead. A lot of these people are just trying to cope. This is kind of that culmination of the world takes sides thing that we started back in book four. And they said it in book five. If you're not with Jesus, you just like sinning too much. That really bothers me. I've said it before and I'll say it again. And I think T is a better character in this sense. And I think because he's marginalized over in the corner as a side character, it tells you where Jerry and Tim's priorities lie, that they will pay lip service to the idea of saving souls and the idea of winning souls for the kingdom. But what they really want to do is fight. Yeah. You know, they want to fight the bad guys. They want to draw the battle lines, you know? That kind of ebbs and flows through the rest of the narrative. But at a lot of points, it's just very disheartening to read it. That's something that, as I was growing up, seemed to be like a major tactic that, again, it was something that turned me off from the church initially. Like, say, hey, if anyone has this particular uh, set of beliefs, they're suspect, and you probably shouldn't associate with them. Or if you are associating with them, every action you do needs to be trying to convert them. I don't know. It was... It's one of those things in Christianity that I find that people talk out of two sides of their mouth. On the one hand, you're supposed to be like Jesus and walk among the sinners because all of his friends were sinners, and you're supposed to bring them up, you know, to God through your actions and your love and things like that. And that's very celebrate from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. But in practice, oh, we don't associate with people like that. Yeah. They're the bad kids. You don't want to sit with them. Hey, you sit with them, you're going to end up in detention just like them. So, you know, they're bad influences. Yeah, you know, hanging be out. Be careful little eye what you see. Oh, you know what? Actually, I started hanging out with like the goth kids in like middle school. And oh, I think, man. And I had like a, either a pastor or some kind of like religious uh, figure of the church I went to is like, I've heard you've been hanging out with like the wrong crowd, Gavin. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's kind of weird because it doesn't necessarily come from scripture. I'm sure Paul said something about it at some point, but Paul had to stick up his ass anyway. Yeah, I'm sure he said something about it somewhere, but like, you know, don't hang out with the wrong crowd or whatever. Uh, specifically, because like whenever I would bring up to certain people, this like, hey, you know, like J Jesus hung out with like as sinners and prostitutes and stuff like that. I would always get the reply. Oh, yeah, but Jesus also said sins no more. So that that was like the retort I would get when I would try to bring that up. With right. Them. It's a contradiction. Yeah. I can hang out with them. Doesn't mean I'm sinning. Mm -hmm. Like I'm perfectly in control of my own actions and I'm supposed to be strong in my faith. Right. So if you're worried about me being influenced, shouldn't you be teaching me to instead galvanize my faith so, rather than not hang out with people because they might be bad I would or say, lost? I would say that would have been a better approach, yeah. Yeah. If you're not willing to associate with people and just, like, be cordial, how are you going to make any progress? It's kind of like what T was saying uh, earlier in the book, right? It's, yeah, it is, yeah, it is kind of what T was saying. And I think that one of my major criticisms of the modern evangelical church and a lot of churches in general is that at that point, outreach and witnessing and kind of bringing people into the fold becomes, to a degree, exoticized. Everything becomes missionary work. So instead of being the light that you should be and being strong in your faith around people that you can act as an influence to, you instead, you know, you go feed the homeless every once in a while, or you go on a mission trip to some other country, or you build a house or something. Not that any of those are necessarily bad things. They are not. Divorced from the religious context, or even within it, they are objectively good things to do. You should help other people. 
But when you do that at the expense of living your own testimony every day and you think that's good enough, it's a bad place to be in because then you're in an echo chamber. You're surrounded only by people who think like you who talk like you, who consume the same media that you do. Yeah, your, your church becomes a mirror. Exactly. And you kind of lose touch. That's something that really stuck out to me, that othering of non-believers. So as we continue to end this chapter, there is some cool stuff that finally happens. Okay. Mac talks to Zion about the conspiracy against Peter II. Because one of the things that Leon's doing is he's pulling all the kings in and going, all right, listen, I guess feel about the whole Peter situation. And every one of them's like, he got to go. Yeah. He makes a reference to Revelation 17, verse 16. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. The beasts and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They'll bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words were, are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So the way that Tim is interpreting that prophecy, kind of like we talked about last week, is that Matthews and Enigma Babylon are the whore of Babylon. They are the prostitute, the harlot. The peoples of the earth will rise up, meaning the 10 kings, the 10 horns on the beast, and they will kill and devour the prostitute. So he's taking it literally with the kill part. Nikolai has actually already talked to each one of the regional potentates, the 10 kings, and he's done his Jedi mind trick on each one of them, and the trap is set. Yeah, and that Jedi mind trick, they they keep on referencing, oh, we haven't seen it on this level since uh, the first book, which I'm finally getting my dark magic that I want. The next section that he pulls it up is actually kind of cool. So I'll, I'll hold off until my commentary for mm-hmm, that, but it, it gets mm-hmm, it gets mm-hmm. pretty sick. Yeah. And Leon actually asked a pretty pertinent question. Have you uh, you ever done that to me? You're too stupid. I don't have to do it to you. Or oh, that it? is what he says. Yeah. yeah. He's like, yeah. oh, pats him on the head. Like, oh, Leon, you dummy. I would never have to do that to you. You do what I say anyway. So Carpathia's plan is that the Ten Kings and Matthews are going to be staying at a hotel for the gala. In this ballroom, there's going to be an ice sculpture of Matthews with all these angel wings. They, they give the classic, oh man, if I were to kill a guy and I wanted to get away with it, I would stab him with an ice pick. So that way, no murder weapon. Yeah, the murder weapon melts because it's a thing made of ice. But we have 10 of them all with icicles, all stabbing them in like every orifice. So like they won't be able to track who does it. So master plan. Which like, honestly, I wish we got to see this happen. It happens off screen. Mm -hmm. But the plan is to stab him with 10 ice knives, basically. And they're all going to stab him at the same time. Very Julius Caesar Mm kind of thing. And then the ice will melt. No murder weapon. And they're all doing it at the same time. And they each think it's their own idea. So they can't implicate one another. Equal responsibility and liability that uh, Lit Wallace said. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they're going to blame it on a random disease that caused bleeding of the mucous membranes. And then they're going to have him instantly cremated and then like just shuffle him off. Uh, oh, no, he caught the, the cryo bleeding disease. Right. That one you hear about. <laughs> but Matthews is pretty much done. Yeah. 
So chapter 20 is really where things are gonna start to pick up. Everybody on the force is gonna take their leave and head off in different directions. Buck starts arguing with Chloe about going to Israel. She's like, come on, you cannot leave me here. Yeah, do you, do you want me to have to raise your child alone, Buck? Yeah, and Buck's like, uh, I don't know, man, maybe. He's, we've only got a few years left. It won't be that hard. He doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> like, there, it's supposed to be written like he cares. He doesn't, because he's Buck Williams, and he's going to do his thing regardless. He gives the excuse that if he doesn't go, then Zion's going to have to go, because Hyam has invited them both. We find out that Hyam is in really bad shape. Oh, yeah. He's like, it, they, they've described him as like almost having a stroke. Yeah, it seems that he has had a stroke. But a doctor checks him out and is like, this doesn't seem like a stroke. But all the symptoms point to a stroke. So his prediction that he was worried about having a stroke seems to have come true. Mm -hmm. He's slurring his speech. He doesn't have the same motor functions. He gets to the point where he's able to barely speak to Buck, and he just Hits him with the guilt trip. He's like, Cameron, I love you like a son. I need to be there for this event. I need you with me, Cameron. And I, I know Zion won't come. I have asked him. I know he's going to say no. Both of you are two of my best personal friends, and you're going to abandon me right now? going to do this to me right now, Cameron? Buck says something where he says, I'm going to have to ask Chloe. And Hyam says something just real bad where he's like ah i see a difference of culture you see a middle eastern man well he is the master of his own fate and he's not beholden to him but kind of cuts him off oh my gosh basically he's like he doesn't have to listen to a woman but buck manages to get Hyam to agree okay i will go with you do not go to the temple mount on the second day okay because buck knows exactly what's gonna happen there's gonna be an earthquake it's gonna be dangerous bad things are gonna happen in addition to that earthquake don't go to the Temple Mount on the second day. And he's like, fine, fine. I only have to be there for a couple of specific things and then we're done. Cut to David and Annie. They discuss getting married, moving their relationship forward. They're really kind of apart from one another with all of the secret squirrel stuff they're doing around the GC. But we also find out that more and more believers are getting found out and imprisoned. Yeah. They're not imprisoning them because they believe in Jesus. They're imprisoning them as seditionists because they are Judahites. Yeah. We haven't used that word on the show yet, I don't think. I, I don't think we have, but the book the book has used it a few times. We just haven't, like, mentioned it, which is, like, the global community's term for what Christians are, like, the rapture Christians Because are. they follow Zion ben Judah. They yeah. call them Judahites. They're trying to brand them as a cult, so that's the term. But we also find out there's a moratorium on arrests until after the gala, so that's actually going to give David and Annie an opportunity to escape. So they are smart kids already planning exit strategies. So like I said, Chloe really isn't having it, sort of getting left alone at the house. She's not alone. She'll have Zion with her because Leah's going, Raya's going, Buck's going, and everybody's going. So the plan is that Leah is going to get Hattie. She's posing as her sister. She actually gets like some Mission Impossible level makeup. Like she gets a dental appliance and they change her eyebrows and contacts and hair. And she's going to pose as one of Hattie's relatives and going to go to Brussels. Ray is going to fly to the crew to Brussels. Buck will then transfer to commercial to fly to Israel. Ray will hang out in Brussels to wait for Leah. Leah will go to the prison where Hattie is being held, which I don't think that they have named it yet, but it's called Buffer. Oh my God. Yeah, that was kind of a cool acronym. The Belgium Facility for Female Rehabilitation. The re-education facility yes. that they have. Yeah, they hold her eyes open clockwork orange style and make her watch Nikolai talking. Uh, now I will repeat this to you once, Hattie. <laughs> <laughs> it's four. And no, it is five. There are four lights. 
So we're back to Mac and Abdullah, who are also in the air, flying the whole villain crew to Israel. We got Leon, we got Nikolai, we got the potentates, we got Matthews, everybody's together. Man, if you could just crash one plane. And I make that joke, but it's taken very seriously later. <laughs> and Nikolai's like, gentlemen, we will look back on this coming week as the beginning of our finest hour. Personal and individual freedom has never been more celebrated. I'm like, okay, hold up. I have a quibble. <laughs> What's your quibble? This is a thing, specifically evangelical Christianity, that they hate the idea of personal and individual freedom or liberty being celebrated if it is in sin. You're not going to find an American evangelical who, if you ask them, do you hate freedom, is going to say yes. In fact, <laughs> we love freedom. They will punch you for saying that. <laughs> you're coming on my freedom. You're coming on my land. Yeah. At the same time, their belief system is no, subjugate yourself to a pattern of behavior under a god emperor. It's just our guy, and then everything's cool. What they're kind of saying is, you know, you have to be a bond servant to Christ and, you know, all that, which is antithetical to personal and individual freedom. It's yet another set of contradictions, which is now the theme of this episode. I just thought of it. <laughs> have any of our other episodes had themes? No. But the contradictions are a big one this time because they keep on a coming. Didn't that stick out as weird? Yeah, they'll be libertarians, but they'll turn around like, I think the modern age has become too self-centered. It's painted as this bad thing that freedom and individual liberty will inevitably lead to decadence and indulgence, which is very fascist. <laughs> Like, that's a very fascist idea, is that societies with the least amount of top-down control will inevitably give way to decadence, as happened in Rome, and you must preserve the virtue of the folk and the state. How much does this kind of, like, you shouldn't fall into, like, decadence and stuff, how much does that come in, like, the kids' book? Like, how do they handle that stuff there? I don't remember as much, because I remember I read those first. I was even younger. Oh, okay. But I know that, like, one of the main female characters, the trailer trash is what they call her, like, smokes and drinks and stuff. And so she's painted as, don't be like this girl. Okay. You know? So she's, that book's Hattie, essentially. Yes, but she is younger. immediately part of the young trip force. Okay. She gets converted very quickly. Okay. I think her name's Vicky. That name matches one that I saw just scrolling through fanfiction. I know it does. Yep. I was reminded of her name last night. So they finally get to Israel. Everybody's coming together. The action is moving to a central location. We get to see the stage being built. It's a huge place. They're expecting two million people oh to show up for this gala, which I may be wrong. That sounds like a logistical challenge. To put it in perspective, Google a picture of Woodstock. 400,000 people there. More than four times that at one event. That's not a recipe for, like, chaos that is a recipe for open riot that sounds like some fire festival stuff I, yeah it's real bad and so they're like oh yeah there's gonna be drinking and partying and tons of hedonistic displays and like bands and dancers and all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. i don't think they understand how many people in one spot two million is Oh my god. I'm just imagining like two million drunk people. That's not a good time. Yeah, and um I just Googled like the average attendance at a Bonnaroo and like if you Google pictures of Bonnaroo, that's maybe a hundred thousand. So twenty times that. And so the stage is huge, it's about half a mile from the Temple Mount, so like within view of the witnesses. Um it's about twelve feet off the ground. There's a big curtain behind it, like video screens and speaker towers, like it's a, an enormous event, you know, spared no expense. All the banners say, one world, one truth, individual freedom for all. 
Which just sounds like Garbo. Yeah. You know, like one world, one truth. Okay, if it's one thing and one thing, then there's no individual freedom. We get the contradiction. Thank you, Tim. So Mac and Abdullah kind of take a minute and they sort of walk around and take in the sights. And they look over at a troop of dancers and they see somebody. It kind of looks familiar. And then she disappears. Is that, hmm. No, it couldn't be. Could it? I don't know. I mean, just like her. I mean, I don't think they mention Hattie again, so it's probably not Hattie. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, probably not. And then she's gone. Yeah. So security is on absolutely high alert. They're installing metal detectors everywhere. Metal detectors that we remember. David sabotage. They don't work. At least they don't work very well. And I said, oh my God, the obsession with evil businesses here, because they go back into the like porn shops, fortune telling, gambling, and I'm sure there's another thing. Let's see. Yeah. Clubs, massage parlors, bars, brothels, pagan What's sanctuaries. What's wrong with a massage parlor? I guess there's like a brothel implication. But you said brothels. Like, massage is physical therapy. If you say brothels, just say brothel. Don't say brothel and massage parlors. Like, there's two separate things. <sighs> so dumb. And Mac and Abdullah decide they're going to take a peek at the witnesses, so they head toward the Temple Mount. Okay. That's going to take us into chapter 21. 21. Buck wonders about Leah and Ray possibly being a thing. Yeah, I, I saw that. They're speculating, like, man, they're, they're getting kind of close, but, like, I wonder what's going on there. I think it's kind of silly that you automatically assume that, like, the single man and the single woman who spend time together are automatically going to be an item. It doesn't really have any reason behind it. It's just sort of this weird thought that Buck has, and then it immediately gets moved past. So no no third wife plot line for Ray. Yeah, he didn't get the hat trick. Okay. As far as I remember. But Mac and Abdullah go to see the witnesses, and we find that the crowd is getting even more bold. Like, some of them are rushing the fence. They're throwing things at them. They're spitting on them. And I think this is supposed to mimic the crowd around Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's what I got, too. It, it, it very much feels like Passion of the Christ-esque, like, reenactment. Gets even more of that later. Okay. Ray drops Leah and Buck off in Brussels so that Buck can go forward to Israel. Like I said, he's hiding the truth from Buck as he takes off for Israel himself. He's like, no, 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 no. I'll stick around in Brussels and watch Leah. He doesn't actually lie. Like, Buck asks what he's going to do, and he's like, don't worry about it. And then Buck goes straight to the Wailing Wall as soon as he gets to Israel. Yakov calls Buck because he needs to come see Hayam because he's in an intensive care, even though he can't actually get in. Because he says that, too. He's like, well, they won't let us in, but you need to know his condition is rapidly deteriorating. So we're kind of worried about Hayam at this point. So Ray touches down in Israel, trying to kind of get lost in the crowd. He calls Leah and goes, hey, sorry, can't pick you up till Friday. I know it was going to be tomorrow. Don't contact me. No questions. Click. <laughs> he leaves her out to dry. Yeah. Like, she's about to go break out an international fugitive and have no backup. Which, uh, that'll, that'll come to bite him back in a, in a little bit. Yeah. So Buck himself goes to see Eli and Moisha. He actually takes his place at the same place where he first spoke to them. He goes and he gets on his knees and just watches. Because Eli and Moisha are preaching their hearts out. They are practically crying and begging people to come to Christ because they know. Yeah, they know that their end is right in the headlights. And they know that, hey, they don't got much time left. This is the 1,260th day. They only got like a day left. 24 hours. Yeah, they got 24 hours uh, to make their point before they're just done. And I think something in here that stands out is that these guys are also kind of LaHaye stand-ins because they got to get in that weird kind of awkward line of Jesus fulfilled over 30,000 of your prophecies or whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's 300. I was like, oh, that's a LaHaye line right there. And then they get 
kind of weird with their messaging. Another weird contradiction because they're like, Jesus loves you. There's no way but to the Father but him. He is the only way to God, and he loves you, and he's here for you. But also, he's coming to wreck your shit, so get right. Right. They, they literally run the whole spectrum of, like, Christian preachers, like like a pendulum, like back and forth, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they give a final proclamation and go silent. Yep, completely silent. I don't think they say another word in, the, like, the rest of the book, right? They just stand there and stare, unblinking. Mm-hmm. We have served the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Lo, we have fulfilled our duty and finished our task until the due time. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Uh, we cut back to Ray, and he has on an absurd disguise. He's wearing... Is it absurd? Okay, I would say what? Indiana Jones wore the same thing. You know what? Yeah, I take that back. <laughs> you know, yeah, he is just Indiana Jones. that's what it made Jones. me think of was Indiana Jones when he's with the diggers, and mm-hmm. he goes down with the Staff of Ra into the thing. He's wearing the turban and the robe and, like, the whole thing. Like, he's dressed kind of stereotypically, but, like, it's not like no one would wear that. Yeah, you know? okay. I, I feel you. He's also wearing some real weird sunglasses. Like, they're not sunglasses. They're, like, eye coverings with little pinholes in them. Your eyes are covered, but they have tiny holes that you can see as well as if you weren't wearing sunglasses. Or maybe they're, like, those steampunk goggles that have, like, the little holes all through them. Maybe. You I- know, like the bug eye goggles. Mm-hmm. He's got his gun with him, and he's walking toward the gala, and he starts pleading with God to spare him, like a Jesus-type, like, let this cup pass from me thing. And I just wrote, you did this to yourself! Yeah, you just spent the last few books be like, I'm gonna kill him, and you're like, um, well, uh, can I get a rain check on this? Begging God to let you do this. What's up? Like, God's like, okay, you're here now. I guess it's kind of like stage fright. Maybe he's getting cold feet. Yeah. And then he also thinks that he sees someone he recognizes in the crowd, and then she's gone. Yeah. it's uh, He could have sworn Hattie had brushed past him, heart racing. He turned to watch her go. Same height, same figure, same gait. Couldn't be. Simply couldn't be. Nah, couldn't be. Hattie can't be here. Of course not. She's in jail. Mac has a little monologue that I love because he is kind of thinking to himself. It's a very short passage, and he just says, you know what? Nikolai makes it out of this. I'm crashing the plane. Oh my gosh. Nope, crashing it. I'm going to make sure Abdullah's not on it. Crashing the plane. I'm going to just do a nosedive. The gala begins in earnest. The GC detail, 10 kings, and some woman in robes take the stage as the crowd goes crazy. Now, some woman in robes, they are Enigma Babylon robes. Yep. Deputy Pontiff Francesca D'Angelo. And notably absent, Petey. Yep. Petey is nowhere to be seen. And that will explain that. Right now, because Carpathia walks up to the crowd and everyone falls deftly silent. He speaks in this haunting, hypnotic, rhythmic voice that Buck had actually heard before. In- Buck goes, oh God, here it comes. Yeah. Uh, 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 what did I do last time? <laughs> yep. Nikolai just goes, you'll not remember uh, that I have interrupted. You're about to hear of a death that will surprise you. It'll strike you as old news. You will not care. Before I pray to the great one-gender deity in whom we all rest and who also rests in all of us, I have an announcement. Pontifex Maximus Peter II died suddenly earlier today. He was overtaken by a highly contagious virus that made it necessary that he be cremated. Our condolences to his loved ones. A memorial service will be held tomorrow morning at this site. Peter's gone. Yep. 
And then Nikolai, in a move of absolute audacity, double books his funeral with the debate in scare quotes that he's going to have with the witnesses tomorrow. So Nikolai already knows what everybody's going to want to see. So he double books the funeral with that Mm -hmm. as just a final middle finger. And uh, that night, there's going to be a party in the Hedonist District. Man, I wish we had a Hedonist District. That'd be cool. Yeah, it's a noon to midnight party. So they're just going hard for 12 hours. That sounds exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like you'd have people passed out by like four. I can't binge watch a TV show for 12 hours. Like, I can't do anything for 12 hours. All right, so chapter 22. This is the point where I said, oh my God, Jerry, stop preaching and get on with it. Because he just goes on for several paragraphs about how wicked and terrible and everything that these people have become. They've sold out to their sin and they love this guy, Nikolai, because they love sin so much. And there's all these idols that they're worshiping. Oh, so many idols. Let's see, on this particular list, we got murder, theft, sorcery, idol worship, and sexual sin. Oh, man. Uh, the, the All the biggins. Most of the commandments, but not really. So Nikolai gives a 45-minute speech. He doesn't pause. He doesn't have notes. He doesn't fumble. It's a classic Nikolai speech. And I just wrote in here, he says, you beloved compatriots, you know Tim wanted to say comrades. You yeah. know he did so bad, but he didn't. Makes the declaration again. I'm going to kill the witnesses. And then he leaves the stage. And around that time, Ray works his way up to the stage. You think he's going to have his moment. He reaches for the gun and then he flinches. Nikolai gets on his helicopter and just flies away. He misses a shot. Yep. Mission failed. We'll get him next time. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the only one of those we have. So Buck realizes that he's kind of out of the loop and that Leah has been left out to dry because Leah calls him him and then he immediately calls ray and it's like dude what are you doing and ray's like uh uh trust me click so the next day matthew's service as predicted is canceled due to lack of interest and d'angelo is unceremoniously defrocked enigma babylon has been staked through the heart it's done and i know this is the dark magic doing it but how funny if it was like the pope died and everyone's just like sucks (laughs) moved on what if they killed a pope and nobody came (laughs) (laughs) enigma babylon goes out with a whimper it's very sad yeah there's no place for even pagan religion in nikolai's kingdom which got a problem with them calling that pagan it's not pagan but i'm not gonna harp on that whatever jerry so buck climbs a tree near the wailing wall to see the witnesses was this a zacchaeus thing Maybe? You guys know that one from Sunday school? Because he's a wee little man. Yeah, he climbs the tree to see over To see the Jesus, thing. yeah. yeah. I, it felt like that to Okay. Because Buck climbs a couple of trees to see this stuff. Buck is a pretty good climber. Yeah, he's a he's Buck Williams action star, man. Yeah. yeah, the Buck Williams. Yeah. So Nikolai lands at the wall. The time has come for the confrontation between Nikolai and the witnesses. Not like this hasn't happened before, but he's always walked away with his tail between his legs. Let's see if it happens this time. Yep. So Nikolai walks up to the gate and he gets like dabbed with a a powder from a makeup artist. They hook him up with a wireless mic. Like this is Nikolai's show. He is wanting to look dolled up for this moment because he's been waiting so long. They use the phrase a couple of times. Nikolai is in his glory. Yeah. Which I kind of dig, but it's like really just like this diva needs her stage. Mm -hmm. Like he is eating it up. And the world is watching. Carpathia, like a magician, whips off his sport coat and hungs it from the top of the pointed bar 
in the fence. Whatever was in the pocket made the coat sag to that side. When Nikolai rolled up his sleeves as if to fight, the crowd went wild. So the crowd's loving this too. Like they're just eating up what he's throwing oh, down. Oh yeah, he's working them. Like he's doing the WWE thing. Like he's he's like leaning to one side and putting his hand next to his ear and then like leaning to the other side. Ray thinks about taking the shot, gets in position. Nikolai challenges the witnesses to come forward. Can you read a little bit of what he says? He starts taunting him like he's like, cat got your tongue? The water in Jerusalem tastes cold and refreshing today. Run out of poison? Co-conspirators run away? Lose access to the water supply? What are you gonna cry? It's a WWE promo. He's really doing a promo right now. Was that rain on my window this morning? What happened to the drought? (laughs) Say, does anyone see locusts? Horsemen, smoke, gentlemen, you are impotent. <laughs> that was so good. Oh man, you just you had it. That was awesome. <laughs> oh man. And so so after that, he opens the gate, roughs them up, shoves them both out. They won't kneel, but he takes out a small block of metal from his suit jacket pocket, does a little hand motion, and it becomes a gun. A very familiar gun. He's got a sword, too. Yeah. He's got his own saber. He shoots Eli in the neck and shoots Moisha in the head. Bam. Yeah, and they just... Bam, and they drop. Yeah, they crumple. Blood just starting going everywhere. The crowd goes ballistic. Yeah, they start cheering and laughing and dancing. They're swaying together, wrestling, just, just having a good old time. Yeah. Ray goes to take the shot and he drops the gun and is almost trampled by the crowd manages to pick it up and scamper off into the crowd as buck has to look on horrified three days pass and we learn that people are actually starting to worship nikolai now kind yeah. of like leon does it was kind of like enigma babylon turned out and then like carpathianism instantly turned on immediately moves in Crowds and news cameras are staying near the bodies. A lot of them are kicking them, desecrating the bodies. Like, they're beginning to rot. The the live feed, like, of the GCCNN is, like, affixed on their bodies, too. Like, even at one point, like, Zion and Chloe, like, cover Kenny's eyes so he doesn't see just the dead bodies on television. That's part of prophecy, is that the whole world will have to see their bodies. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. We end the chapter by learning that Hyam is released from the hospital because he has recovered just enough to make the final night of the gala. Final chapter. This has been a long one, guys, but it's about to all be worth it. So Leah will not stop calling Ray. She's got to reach him because Hattie is no longer in prison. Oh, I wonder where she could be. We I have no idea. We haven't seen her in a while. I hope Hattie's okay. Buck never leaves his post. At the Wailing Wall, he's coming back every day to watch Eli and Moisha's bodies and see what the revelers are doing to them. And as a group of drunken revelers are around them, kicking the bodies, all of a sudden, Eli and Moisha stir. Yeah, they, they rise. They completely heal. The blood disappears. They look at the crowd with almost a look of sadness and regret. As the clouds part and a light shines down and a voice that is audible to everyone in the city says... Come up here. And they just go, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. And they just ascend into heaven. 
Then the sky turns black, cold rain starts pelting the area, buildings start crashing down. Yep, another earthquake, just like they said. I mean, and honestly, they're like, yeah, it's not too bad, though. (laughs) Compared to, like, what they've been through, it's really not that bad of an earthquake. And so the city's in an uproar now because two dudes just got raised from the dead after being murdered. And then an earthquake happened. And then an earthquake happened. Another reference to the crucifixion. So Ray hears GC peacekeepers blaming zealots for stealing the bodies and they refuse to broadcast the the resurrection on TV. This is hitting me now that this whole kind of scene and a little bit into the next book has a very like Stations of the Cross crucifixion kind of like several homages. Yeah. Buck returns to Hyam's house, finds out that exactly one-tenth of Jerusalem was destroyed and Hyam is demanding that Buck go with him. He's like, Yakov will drive us. I need you there. I have to be there. I cannot miss this. It is such an important event. You will not deny me this. And Buck is like, fine. Not going to talk you out of it. Fine. We'll go. Ray goes to the ceremony, as does Mac. Abdullah's like, I'm, I'm going to hang back. I don't, I'm, I'm good. So Mac's in the crowd. Ray's in the crowd. Buck is there with Hyam backstage. Yakov is there as well. Chaim takes the stage in his wheelchair. Yaakov helps him up. Both men go through a metal detector. They're both searched. They're allowed to go up on the stage. The ceremony is more somber than it was previously. Nikolai introduces Chaim and gives an address about how reconstruction will begin immediately. Remember those who are lost. And we look forward to this first day of utopia and our brighter future. Ray locks and loads. Yep. Takes aim. And then some commotion starts happening on the stage. Nikolai moves to embrace Hyam. This is where things get a little complicated and a lot happens very quickly. So we're going to try to run through it and hit the high points. So the crowd is eating up what's going on on the stage. Nikolai begins his speech again. And suddenly three of the ten potentates behind him stand. And instantly Leon and Carpathia are like, this isn't part of the itinerary. Yep. Because then the other seven stand and they all kind of start clapping. And it's a weird, awkward moment. Nikolai goes back to the podium and bumbles. He's like, um, uh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Which he never does. He's thrown off his game a little. And he kind of turns around and is like, don't do that to me. And like the crowd laughs. Like he's kind of humanized a little bit. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Hyam starts rolling his wheelchair toward Leon. And everybody laughs because they're kind of, they think they're cutting up on stage. And the crowd thinks they're doing a bit. And then all of a sudden, Ray knows he sees Hattie on his left. Yeah. Like, for real. Like, he tries to keep her in his sights, but she just, she vanishes just as soon as he sees her again. Yep. Doing some kind of Assassin's Creed thing. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> and so Ray's like, you know what? Now or never. He pulls the gun out, aims, ready to take the shot, but he can't pull the trigger. Yeah, he's just like, at last moment, he's just like, what, what am I doing? I, can, can I really do this? What's going on? But as he's having all this self-doubt, an explosion goes off. And it was him. Someone bumped him from behind mm-hmm. while he was in his own head. He pulled the trigger, and the saber went off. Yep. The crowd goes nuts. Ray drops the gun. The crowd is running this way and direction. He looks up and sees that the speaking podium, the lectern, is shattered into shrapnel. The curtain at the top of the stage is completely ripped away. Another crucifixion reference. Oh, like of the the cloth? The rending of the veil in the temple. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. And Nikolai is nowhere in sight as all the delegates on the stage just dive out of the way for cover. Buck ducks for cover out of sight behind a speaker tower, and it's important that he's there because Nikolai is still miked. 
Yep, and Nikolai's final words is a liquid, guttural murmur, and he just goes, but, but I thought, I, I thought, I, I, I did everything you asked. And then Fortune on runs on and's like, don't die, Excellency. We need you. The world needs you. I need you. Poor Leon lost his senpai. My, my wife, boo. Yeah. <laughs> he just sits there and cradles him almost like the Virgin Mary cradling her son. Yep. So we've got the inverted, like, parallel almost. Of- you think that's, like, why they made it kind of gay? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, maybe that was, like, they're like, oh, it should be two, two men, and that's why it's perverted. <laughs> I'm I'm not joking. Like I wish I were. I think that might be part of it because he's sitting there cradling Leon, whose blood, by the way, is gushing from his eyes, his ears, his nose, and his mouth. Mm-hmm. Buck can see from his position exactly what caused the wound, and that it is absolutely 100% fatal. Yep. GCCNN declares Nikolai Carpathia dead. Everyone's kind of in shock. Even Zion is in shock. He's like, I didn't expect it to be a gunshot. It was. It was supposed to be a sword. There's that weird thing of him arbitrarily picking things to be literal again. Yeah. He said, had Zion been wrong all along? I said, no, he wasn't. That's dumb. He got everything else right. And there's even the technicality of the saber thing. If it was indeed the gun. No, that's dumb. We get uh, Leon Fortunato. He's given an address to everyone. And he's like, we shall carry on the courageous spirit of our founder and moral anchor, potentate Nikolai Carpathia. The cause of death will remain confidential until the investigation is complete, but you may rest assured the guilty party will be brought to justice. And so Nikolai lies in state at the GC Palace, and we end the book. Leon calls David into his office, shows him the security feed from the stage. Can you read that final passage? Yep. The camera doesn't lie, Leon said. We have our assassin, don't we? Much as he wanted to come up with some other explanation for what was clear, David would jeopardize his position if he proved illogical. He nodded. We sure do. The end. And then we get the epilogue. Second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Revelation eleven fourteen. We did it! Woo! <laughs> We're halfway through! We are at the halfway point, brothers and sisters! <laughs> oh, and Nikolai Carpathia. No better time than unpredictable. <laughs> In the end, there's rain. I hope you had the time of your life. <laughs> well, that's going to do it. We got one more episode of Assassins to get through, and that's going to be our off-the-record wrap-up episode where we get to cut up and talk about really what we thought about the book and give it our final rating, which I think that that's going to be a particularly interesting part. Mm-hmm. Join us on that again next week. But until then, this has been I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, take the shot, Ray. Take the shot. Bye! Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSource Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSource.com and check out the IndieSource Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. A phantom to lead you in the summer To join the Black Parade